It is a blessing to sing from the Psalter hymnal, isn't it? Uh, I don't know how much, if you appreciate that as much, but uh, coming from a person who goes to different churches and visits uh, where sometimes the Psalter is not sung, um, and then coming into hearing it again, it's truly a, a blessing and a treasure that uh, you have, and I hope and encourage you to continue to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. The psalms uh, we are turning again to tonight uh, are Psalm 42 and 43, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to it. Um, if you were here this morning, you heard that we looked at Psalm 11, and again, looking to the Psalter tonight. Some of you might be saying, now, why is he doing another psalm that's a, a, a lament? So that's two psalms of lament uh, that we're going to be dealing with today. But the reason is, there are so many people who are discouraged and down and depressed. I see it all over. And so I want to encourage you. I want to uh, bless you with God's word and bring some kind of comfort uh, to those of you especially who may be discouraged. If you're not discouraged, then let it be an encouragement to you as well so that you can be an encouragement to others. The Psalms really are a wonderful source of spirituality for us as God's people. Uh, Augustine called them the school. St. Athanasius called it the gymnasium. You see, like that imagery. Um, but the Psalms are, uh, the life, have been the lifeblood, really, of the people of Israel and of the church so for thousands of years. In fact, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. And so he was talking there, when he uses the word Psalter, he is thinking about the book of Psalms, but he's also thinking, I think as well, about the singing of the Psalms. And so it's this treasure that if it's lost, uh, the church loses this, this wonderful treasure, but with its recovery comes power. And so I encourage us to continue to look to God's word and to the Psalms. And I'm also planning to read... Uh, from Lord's Day number 12, question 31, why is Christ called, uh, why is he called Christ meaning anointed? So I'm going to begin with that, and then we'll go to Psalm 42 and 43, if you don't mind. Why is he called Christ meaning anointed? The answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance, and then here especially, and our holy, our high priest, who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. And now turning to 
Psalm 42 and 43, and you will see why we're reading it together, because really the two uh, form, in essence, one psalm. Hear the word of God to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of Mitzar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. In the night his song shall be with me a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your holy tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, since our whole salvation depends upon a proper understanding of your word, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you will enable us to hear your word, to receive it, to love it, and to obey it, all to your glory, and for the sake of your people, your church. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. 
Well, as you heard from this psalm, I mean, it's quite clear as I read it that this is a psalm of of discouragement. The psalmist is facing such great uh, discouragement and despair. And I often think about, uh, when I I think of this psalm, I think of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, right? Uh, I mean, if, if any of you have read any Christian fiction, you've read Pilgrim's Progress, But not many people know as much that uh, so much of what Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress was based on his own life. And he wrote his uh, spiritual autobiography, which is Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in that uh, autobiography, Bunyan describes how he encountered despair and discouragement. He said this, Truly I did now feel myself to sink into a gulf as a house whose foundation is destroyed. He compared in his condition like a child. He said, I feel like I am a child who's been thrown into a pit and I can't get out. There's nothing for me to grab onto, to hold onto. And he said he felt that way. That was his condition. And it seems as if that's the condition of the psalmist that we encounter this evening. And so what I'd like to do this evening, my three points, are to describe what is the problem, what does the psalmist do about that problem, and then what are the results of the things that he does. So first, the problem. Obviously, the problem is discouragement. And the Psalms are so beautiful in describing even discouragement and despair, aren't they? I mean, this is truly beautiful poetry. As a deer pants for streams of living water, as a deer looking over the former water courses, trying to find water, looking, looking at the old places that the deer had found before, looking for water trying to find it, thirsty, thirsty. What a beautiful imagery. And we all can identify with that. Water is something that we obviously live, need for, for life. Our bodies are made up of 60% water, and without it, we don't last very long, maybe three or four days at best. So the psalmist is trying to portray in a very real, practical way the need that we have in our soul for God. That just as this deer is searching for fresh water to drink, looking, 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 that's our soul, looking, looking for God. We cannot live without God. Our soul needs the Lord. It's very similar to Psalm 63.1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This sadness that the psalmist is experiencing is expressed inwardly. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He says it several times, verse 5, verse 6, verse 11, and then chapter 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? It's, It's something that is physically and emotionally impacting 
the psalmist. Yeah. When I think of being cast down, or as we used to say, downcast, um, I think of when I used to coach youth basketball. So when my son was in, uh, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grades, I was the basketball coach. And uh, we had some pretty good teams in those years, but there were a few times where we were not doing very well. And you know what it's like. You've seen athletes, you've seen young people playing, and when they lose, the temptation is to do what? Walk, don't want to talk to anybody, don't want to look at anybody. You come back to the huddle with your head down, you're cast down. Literally, your head's are cast down. It's a physical uh, manifestation of what's happening inwardly. And that's exactly what the psalmist is facing. It's a very real sense that God has forgotten the psalmist. Verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Well, Jesus even picks that theme up as he prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? Where are you? It's the experience that many of God's people uh, can feel from time to time. And I think the problem is exacerbated by the fact that the psalmist says that he used to lead people in worship. He says, I remember when I used to lead the people into the temple to praise the Lord. And so there was such great joy and happiness that he had experienced in, in knowing the very presence of God in the temple with God's people. So in this, this problem of feeling that God is not there is even worse because he remembers these past graces that he was able to have. And then outwardly, the problem is made even worse because there are antagonists. Just as we encountered in Psalm 11, and just as you encounter all throughout the Psalms, there are enemies. They're called wicked or ungodly. Whatever the title might be, they're present. And they are people who are anti-Christ. They are against any movement that you make in your obedience to Jesus Christ. And they love to um, make fun of or belittle the Christian faith. So they say to me all day long, where is your God? Verse 3. Or verse 10, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Again, overtly and covertly, they are antagonistic to God's people. They are his enemies. They are the ungodly. They are the ones that are mentioned in Psalm 1. They do not delight in God's law. They do not meditate on that law. And so they are they are in Psalm 2. They are the ones who rage against the Lord. They plot against God, and they take counsel against the Lord's anointed. These are the enemies of God. Don't think for a moment that you don't have enemies in this life. They are the ungodly. They are the wicked. They seek violence. They seek to trip you up in your Christian walk. Well, the psalmist describes for us what it, what it feels like to have this, this uh, discouragement that he's facing, and, and he thinks of two different pictures. One, again, this is poetry, so he says, my tears have been my food day and night. Well, that's not literal, is it? 
But what he's trying to say is, when you're, when you're so sad, yes, yeah, sometimes you cry, and you can cry a lot. Um, and, and you don't feel like eating. You lose your appetite. And so the psalmist says, my tears, literally, I mean, they become almost like food for me because I don't have an appetite. I'm so sad, so depressed, so down, that all I can do is cry. Secondly, the psalmist says in verse 7, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The language is very similar to uh, the book of Jonah, isn't it? When Jonah is cast overboard, again, the, the waves and the breakers come over him. He's overwhelmed. He's swallowed up by aff- affliction. I don't know if you understand that feeling of what it is like to almost feel like you're drowning. I almost did when I was a kid. I was with my cousin in Pierre, South Dakota, and we went down to the Missouri River, and uh, I, was, I could swim across a pool, but I was not a very good swimmer in the river. And we had been warned not to swim in the river. Well, my cousin said, let's swim across. There's a little island right there. Let's just go. We can do it. I said, oh, okay. We start swimming across. And my confidence started to lessen and lessen. And I began to flail, and I, I lost all hope. I mean, I, I started to see my life flash before my eyes, and I started to go down. And I yelled to my cousin, I need help, you know. And, and I, I just started to try to turn around. But it's this feeling of being out of control, helpless, Like Bunyan said, it's like being thrown into a pit and you can't get out. And there's great fear. I was blessed because my cousin was able to come alongside me and help me to get back uh, to the river side. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. And that sense of, of losing control, of can't see out of your own situation, that there's no bottom to life, that life passes before you. That's what the psalmist is feeling like. That's what he's saying. These breakers are, are coming over and over and over again. In fact, Bunyan describes that in Pilgrim's Progress. Do you remember that? When evangelist shares the word of God to him and he begins to understand the gospel and And so he says, I'm going to leave where I'm at, and I'm going to follow. I'm going to go the narrow way, the straight gate. He's going to follow Christ. And his neighbors have all kinds of reactions. It's interesting. Some of the neighbors are mocking him. Some of them laugh at him. Some of them threaten him. And others start to cry. Well, he takes off on his journey, and two of those neighbors join with him. Do you remember them? Obstinate and pliable. Well, obstinate only lasts a few steps, and he says, this isn't for me. And he walks back, which leaves just Christian and pliable, and they're beginning to walk, and Christian is explaining to pliable the things that he learned from evangelist, and he's sharing some of these, the joys that he learned, and they continue on this, this path, and then all of a sudden, they come near a miry bog. 
It's a slew. Do you remember the name of the slew? The slew of despond. Despondency. Discouragement. And the text says, Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. And Pliable said, where are you, Christian? And, and Christian says, I don't know. And Pliable, what was his response? He was offended. He was angry. He says, is this the happiness that you were talking about when we were walking along the way? Because if this is it, he said, I'm out of here. And you don't hear about Pliable anymore. And Christian was left to himself, sinking in the mire until the character hope or help came along, right? And help talked to him and lend him a hand and lifted him out of the miry bog. Well, that's what the psalmist is feeling like. As the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. So that's the problem that the psalmist is facing. He feels that God has forsaken him. He wants to praise the Lord, but he's not there yet. So what does he do? Well, I know this sounds really simple, but the first thing he does is he prays, right? He says, my soul pants for you, O God. So that's really important to see that because it's the rest of the psalm really is something where he's describing what he's feeling like. The only place where he directs his, his conversation to God is right there at the first verse. My soul pants for you, O God. That's a prayer. You know, there's different kinds of ways that we talk to people each day, right? There's language of information. We do that all the time when we're at work, right? We, we share information constantly. And then there's other kinds of uh, information, other kinds of conversations that we have with people. Um, marketing people and politicians like to uh, motivate us or convince us to do something. And then there's the kind of conversation that's happening here. It's the intimate conversation. It's the kind of conversation that you have with your spouse or with your children or loved ones or dear friends. That's what's happening with the psalmist. He is, in a very intimate way, turning to God and offering up to the Lord his struggles. That's really important because we don't always turn to the Lord when we're struggling, when we're depressed, when we're down. But David did. And he contended strongly in his sorrow. You could say he was wrestling with God, just as Jacob wrestled with the Lord, just as Moses, in his prayer on the mountain, was contending with the Lord in prayer, just as Paul was contending in prayer when he said in Romans 10.1, my heart's desire and my prayer to God on behalf of the Jewish people is that they would be saved. Paul was longing for his, his Jewish family to come to know the Lord. And of course, Jesus Christ offers us 
the greatest example of one who was wrestling in prayer in the garden and on the cross. I do want to encourage you to have this kind of wrestling prayer, this kind of contending prayer, this weighty longing after God kind of prayer. Now, some of you are going to say, you know, I'm so down, I don't often feel like praying. Or you may know someone like that. They are so sad and so depressed that they say, I, I just don't know what to say. I don't, I can't, I can't pray. And in those instances, I think this is where we find great comfort in the knowledge that I read to you from our catechism number 31, where Jesus is our high priest, where he is the one who has delivered a sacrifice of his body for us. We don't offer sacrifices. He has done it all. And he continually intercedes for us before the Father. I saw this most clearly several years ago when I was reading a book by a pastor that he, it was a collection of letters that he had written to people in his congregation. And one of the members had asked him, how do you learn how to pray? What, what do you do? And instead of this pastor saying, here are a bunch of techniques, here are steps that you can learn how to pray, he didn't do that. He said this, he said this quote, the single most important thing to know about prayer is that Jesus prays, is praying right now for you. The large revealed fact that Jesus prays is the reality in which you and I do our praying. My life of prayer is not primarily a matter of what I do or what I don't do, but what of, of what Jesus does and is doing at the right hand of God the Father. That's exactly what the Catechism is teaching us about Jesus interceding. That's encouragement for us that even in those times where we may feel like we can't utter a word of prayer, it's okay. What we need to do is to dwell more and more on the fact that Jesus, our high priest, is living to intercede for us. When we are facing such difficult times, he is praying for us. And just let that sink in. Dwell on that. Meditate on the Lord. That's the first thing he does. Very simply, he prays. He's, he's able to utter out this word to you, O God. The second thing he does is he preaches to himself. That's how some pastors describe what he's doing. Now, we would say, well, is he talking to himself? Well, it's kind of like talking to yourself, but you're, when you preach to yourself, you are preaching the gospel to yourself. That's the difference. You know, it's one thing for you to walk into a room and go, now, what was I looking for? That's talking to yourself. Or, like me, if I play some golf and I'm horrible at it, and I hit, hit the ball and it goes this way, and I go, now, why did I do that? That's talking to yourself. 
The difference is that the psalmist is taking the very word of God and preaching it to himself. And so what does he say to himself? How does he counter the negative words of his adversaries when they say, where is your God? What does he do? He says, hope in God, O my soul. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. Hope in God. In other words, trust in those great and very precious promises of the Lord. And preach them to yourself. Remind yourself of all the things that you have heard in the gospel in the day of your trouble. I can tell you it's revolutionary for you to hear the gospel. It's revolutionary for me to hear the gospel. It totally transforms our lives. Instead of us being so focused on ourselves and our problems, when we believe in the gospel, when we believe in the promises that God has for us and for our future, that our future is bright in him, it changes how we live our life. Let me give you an example. In the book of Hebrews... Uh, the Christians were facing persecution, hardship. Uh, there was great persecution in that early church. And some of those Christians were imprisoned. Some of them uh, had their properties uh, stolen, taken away from them by the government. Uh, they faced great persecution. And the author of Hebrews wants to preach the gospel to them. And, he, and so he says in Hebrews 10, he says, Recall those former days when you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle by those reproaches and, and tribulations, and partly while you became companions to those who were so treated. So what he's saying is, remember those hard times that you were facing you were identifying with other believers. You chose to identify with them. They were being mistreated, and you joined with them. He says, For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. How could they do that? How were these early Christians able to just joyfully allow the plundering of their property? And to be imprisoned, he says, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which is a great reward. These early Christians understood the great hope that they had. That even if they died, that God had prepared for them eternal life. And so that enabled them to live a life of love and freedom in Christ. They weren't consumed about their own needs and about their possessions. They were able to detach themselves from those things so that they could serve and love their fellow brothers and sisters. So the key to having that kind of great joy, 
that unleashes love and good works and that embraces suffering with those who are suffering is to know that you have a better and abiding possession. It's future-oriented. And so you, you can have that confidence about your, fe- your future. I say all that to say the psalmist has been preaching gospel words to himself to hope in the Lord, put your confidence in the Lord, knowing he's going to provide for you, he's going to take care of you. So, the psalmist is facing spiritual discouragement. He prays and he preaches the gospel to himself. Well, what are the results of that praying and that preaching? I do want to be honest because if you read these psalms, you don't see that he is necessarily lifted out of discouragement yet. In fact, verse 7 says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Calvin said this about that verse. He says, There will not only... There will be not only one depth to swallow us up, but depth will call upon depth. So there's no easy answer to this discouragement. He's doing what he needs to do, but there's not an immediate lifting necessarily. One of the things that I really like about the Bible that draws me to it is the fact that it is so real in dealing with life. It doesn't minimize suffering. It doesn't try to cover up suffering like the world tries to do. It's not particularly interested in finding explanations for why there might be suffering. Rather, it teaches us to engage suffering, to experience our suffering, and to offer our suffering up to the Lord in prayer. And it shows us, ultimately, that our Lord and Savior entered into our suffering, into our humanity, and suffered on on behalf of us. And so it doesn't try to eliminate it. It doesn't try to cover it up. It doesn't try to give us three easy steps to get out of suffering. Instead, it says, pray your suffering and know that the Lord has suffered for you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so prayer is the method through the process, but we don't become less needy or less dependent when we pray, and sometimes we don't have immediate answers to our prayers. Sometimes we become even more needy and more dependent upon the Lord, which is to say we become more human. And so the psalmist is not immediately lifted out of discouragement. We don't see that. But what we do see is that God gave him a song. Verse 8 At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So God gave him a song to sing in the midst of his discouragement. We see that even in the title of the the psalm, that this was to the chief musician. This song, which is, this, this psalm is, which is so sad and discouraging in some ways when you read it, it's like, 
Wow, the psalmist is very discouraged. Was made into a song. They sang about it. And so, singing exists because God has made us with emotions and not just thoughts. And our emotions are important as well as our thoughts. And music is a part of our life. And singing is a part of our life. And God wants to give us songs to sing in the midst of our struggles and hardships. That's why one of the beautiful treasures, as I mentioned to you earlier, that we have is the Psalter hymnal. To learn the very word of God through song and then to sing it. And not just to sing it on the Lord's Day, but to sing it all throughout our lives. Take note of many of the, of the Calvinists from the period of the Reformation. Like the, the, the Scottish Covenanters, whom many of them were singing psalms when they were executed. Or... The, 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 the French Huguenots, again, many of them singing psalms, that became their hallmark, their trademark. Or the Dutch, again, using the psalms and singing those, a very hallmark of who they were as God's people. These early reformers give us an example of people who have a song in their hearts, a song that they sing throughout their life, not just as they gather for worship. God will give a song in our hearts to sing, and then we can sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, beloved, I don't know if you find yourself in a miry bog uh, this evening, in a slough of despondency. You can be assured that you're not alone. Jesus walked through the pit of God-forsakenness all the way to the cross. He prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Lord prayed from the cross, I thirst. So he knows our spiritual thirst. And in the midst of that suffering, we have a high priest who is praying even now for us and who enters into our suffering by the presence of his Holy Spirit. As the scripture tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And so we can call upon him. We can preach good news to our soul. And in due season, he will give us a new song to sing, a song of hope and of steadfast love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this encouraging message as we think of the life of David and the spiritual discouragement he faced. And We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ who lives to intercede for us, knowing that we can offer up to you, yes, even our hardships and our toils and struggles, And even when we are unable to pray, we thank you that we have you praying, interceding for us. And we have the Holy Spirit within us groaning with words too deep to be expressed. We thank you, O God, for these gospel words, for this encouragement. And I pray for anyone here tonight who may be struggling with discouragement. 
that they may find hope, hope in you. And then I pray that you'll give them a song to sing. And so, Father, we commend ourselves to you. Will you encourage us and bless us? In Jesus' name, amen.